was a Sunday night, and the auditorium was about half full with the usual members in attendance. Uh, if guests showed up, it was always on a Sunday morning, but not Sunday night. However, uh, there was one guest that particular night, and his name was Bert. The worship went on as usual. The selection of familiar hymns, the announcements about women's ministry were made, and an upcoming youth activity, and a few more songs were played. And the pastor stepped in the pulpit and preached a doctrinal sermon that concluded with an appeal to repent and receive Christ. As usual, the people stood to their feet and the imitation song started. And the first, no one came forward, but eventually, Bert, an unsaved guest, stepped out and began to make his way down the aisle. However, this was no ordinary march. As Bert began to make his way down the aisle, his face was contorted and his movements were erratic, to say the least. He began to howl loudly and let out a string of growls at church members as he moved towards the pastor and he spoke in a voice that was not his own. Not knowing what to do, the pastor dismissed the entire church and managed to get Bert to his office along with the associate pastor. And upon entering the office, Bert, all five feet six, 150 pounds of him, began to throw the six foot three, 350 pound associate pastor around the room like a rag doll. And after what seemed like an eternity, Bert began to speak in a normal voice. He repented of his sins and he was saved that night. Now, at various times, I have heard bits and pieces of that story whenever the subject of demons and demon possession comes up, but no one ever knew if it was real or if it was kind of an urban legend uh, in our little town. After all, it took place in a conservative, traditional, uh, 300-member Baptist church that you and I could get into and drive to uh, in just a few short minutes. It wasn't at some Benny Hinn crusade or out in the jungles of some pagan country. In the summer that I came home from Bible college, I was invited to preach at a small country church and that night there were about 30 or 40 people in attendance and after I bumbled through a few minutes and attempted a sermon uh, the service closed and several people came up at the end and I was about 24 years old and uh, several people come just said hey I appreciate what you did tonight we just want to encourage you and it was so good what you said and it was obvious that they were just trying to be nice because just to be honest it was a terrible sermon it was horrible and there wasn't much sincerity in their words of flattery except for one guy and he kind of stayed around to the end. And I just got to tell you, I didn't know this at the time, but now, after doing this for 14 years, when someone stays after a long time, I get a little nervous because I'm not sure what they want to say. But he stayed after for a while and waited until everyone cleared out. And he came towards me with a serious look on his face. And, and I knew that he was serious when he shook my hand. And here's what he said. He said, young man, he said, I appreciate what you said tonight about the power of Jesus Christ. He said, I can testify to that power. I thanked him for his compliment. And then, then he said this. He said, you don't know me. He said, my name is Bert. He said, let me tell you about the night that I got saved at the Baptist church down the road. And Bert went on to tell me that for much of his life he spent as a warlock, which he explained was a male witch. He said, I live with two witches north of Dayton doing whatever we could to advance the kingdom of darkness. And so if you don't think that's real, he said, let me tell you something, young man. I've lived it. And Jesus Christ saved my life. Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn this morning to Hebrews chapter 1. This morning, uh, we are beginning a new uh, three-week series called Ask Anything, uh, where the subtitle is Bible Answers for Common Questions. And these are over 14 years of doing this. There are just certain topics, uh, certain uh, areas of Bible study that people are just unclear about and, and uh, similar questions. And so we're going to look at a couple of those topics over the next three weeks. And this morning, uh, we're going to look at the subject of angels and demons. 
And so uh, as you're turning to Hebrews chapter 1, this is going to be more of a topical message. Uh, this whole series will be. So there's not one chapter in the Bible that's called the angel and demon chapters. So we'll kind of have to start here and, and pull some things out of here. But look over the whole counsel of God's word on what it says about what for most people uh, is a very mysterious subject. Here's a fast fact as you're turning there. Angels are mentioned in 34 books of the Bible for a total of 273 times. 108 in the Old Testament and 165 in the New Testament. So we've got a lot of ground to cover this morning, so I'm going to encourage you, as always, uh, to listen fast, all right? So let's look at Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things, By the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Now, the book of Hebrews itself is a little mysterious. We don't talk about it a lot. Some people throughout church history said it wasn't inspired. We're not totally sure who the author is, but let me give you a summation of the book of Hebrews. It's all about Jesus Christ, a better prophet, a better priest, a better king, and a better sacrifice. And so that's how he's starting up this uh, introduction. And then he gets in this little discourse about angels here, uh, beginning in verse 5. And so let's look at that. It says, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son? Today I have begotten you, and again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits spirits, and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up, and they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not fare. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstools? Are they not all ministering spirits, sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation. Now, so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to kind of give you a a 101 on angels and then a 101 on demons this morning. And we're going to talk about, kind of formulate it both ways, similar, uh, angels and demons in the past, uh, angels and demons in the present. What exactly are they doing? And then angels and demons in my life. What does the Bible actually teach about our relationship to these celestial beings? And so, unfortunately... When it comes to the subject of angels, uh, most people don't have a biblical theology. Most of our theology related to angels has been hijacked by either Hallmark or Hollywood. And most of what people believe comes from one of those two sources, not from the scriptures. And so I'm going to walk you through an overview this morning on angels first. And so let me talk to you first off about angels in the past. Let me give you some fast facts about angels in the past. First off, here's what we see in the scriptures. They were created prior to the creation of the earth. Uh, The book of Job, uh, chapter 38, which by the way, Job is the oldest book in the Bible. Genesis is not Job, is the oldest book in the Bible. And here's what Job chapter 38 says. It says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And now, if you don't know what's going on here, Job's complaining about his life. And God says, uh, are you, who are you to complain against me? And so in Job chapter 38, it says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. 
Or who stretched out the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Uh, who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together? Now listen to this. And all the sons of God shouted for joy. That term there, morning star, is a reference to the angels. And so he's saying, listen, Job, before the world was even created that you're complaining about, the angels, I created everything in the heavens, including the morning stars or the angels. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That word heavens is plural. Why is it plural? Because heavens is in everything encompassed within heaven is included in that statement, including angels. You say, well, how do you know that for sure? Because I read chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 1 says this. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And so scripture says this, that angels were created before the beginning of the world. The second thing we see in studying the scriptures about angels, this, is they're created as a set number. They're created as a set number. There's been much uh, speculation about how many angels there are, but the Bible simply teaches that their number is vast. Listen to these scriptures. Luke chapter 2 talks about a multitude of angels. Revelation 5, 11 says, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne. Daniel chapter 7 says this, I watched till thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. A thousand thousands ministered to him, then thousand times ten thousand stood before him. That means a hundred millions, what he's describing there. And he's just describing a fraction of the angels. Job chapter 25 verse 3, can his, meaning God, forces be numbered? And so why we don't know the total amount of angels. Anyone ever ask you, how many angels do you think there are? You can answer with biblical authority, a lot. There's a lot, right? A whole bunch. And so why we don't know the total number of angels, what we do know is that number is totally uh, permanently fixed. We never see reference in Scripture to an angel dying, but we do not uh, do this, that angels do not reproduce. Uh, Matthew chapter 22, verse 30 says this, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. Angels don't procreate. This says no need for them to be married. And most scholars believe, even though they believe that masculine names are used for Gabriel and Michael, that angels are actually gender neutral. And so there's no baby angels running around at heaven. There are no baby angels running around your house, even though grandparents will tell you different. But the reality is there is a set number of created angels once and for all when God created them. Now, let me tell you another fact about angels. Uh, we also see this in Scripture. They're organized by rank. And so for those of you who grew up in a military background, you like the thought of that. Listen, this is good news this morning. There is some hierarchy as it relates to angels according to the Word of God. Colossians chapter 1 verse 16 says this, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth. What does that entail? That also entails angels. Everything created in heaven of which the angels are part of that according to Genesis chapter 2 verse 1. All things are created by him whether visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. And those terms principalities and powers and thrones and dominions in Jewish thought in the first century were used to point to some type of hierarchical structure in the angelic realm. And so scripture gives different descriptions and words of this about their ranks. It talks about cherubim and seraphim and living creatures and several other kinds of things. And uh, sometimes we're familiar with the term archangels, which are uh, two are named in Scripture. Gabriel and Michael are the highest rank of all angels. The prefix arch actually means first. 
And so I don't know why God did that, but apparently when he created the heavens, uh, he put the angels out there, there was some kind of hierarchy involved. So we know they were created before the foundation of the earth. We know their number is vast. We know they don't reproduce. Uh, We also know that there's some kind of rank that goes on. And so what exactly are angels doing? Now, some of you are thinking, hey, listen, I've watched Hallmark Channel. They play harps, right? Or sometimes they play in the outfield for the angels. You all see that movie? But what exactly does the Bible say that they're doing? We can uh, summarize this very quickly. The purpose of angels can be summarized as worship and service. It's if you ever wonder what what exactly are angels doing today, worship and service would be the two broad categories we would place them under. Uh, Scripture doesn't say that's all they do, but that's their primary purpose. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, look at verse 6 here in this text. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let the angels of God worship him. And so scripture says over and over, they describe angels around the throne of God, praising him, crying out his name, holy, holy, you know, all those things. And worship is one of the primary facets of angels. The Bible also says they're involved in acts of service. Acts chapter 5, verse 19 says this, But at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of life. And so at various points in time, we can see in the pages of Scripture where God would send an angel or a messenger to intervene in someone's life, to give them a word, to give them some deliverance, to protect them. And so we see that over and over in Scripture. Their purpose is worship and service. Here's the other thing we see about angels. Is that angels, according to the Bible, were created above humans. About a decade ago, in the mid-90s, I guess almost two decades ago, the mid-90s, there was a full-blown state of angel mania in America. Uh, There was no, uh, I had some statistics on retail sales on anything related to angels, whether it was stuffed animals or postcard, whatever it was, and there was just this enormous amount of interest in angels. Uh, And so the, the reality was, the only problem is that when we looked at that, there was, the angels were almost like a, like a cuddly pet, like there was this little kind of little creature and just almost like a pet. Here's the problem with that. Scripture, whenever there's an encounter with a person, with an angel in Scripture, it's not, oh, wow, that's neat, or that's not this little cuddly thing. Over and over in the Bible, when people came into contact with true messengers, angelic messengers of God, the response from the angel over and over was this, fear not. Fear not. Why? Because when you came into the presence of an angelic being, you were overwhelmed. No one sat back and said, dude, you see that? That's cool. They got down on their face because they knew they were in the presence of something that had been the presence of God. And so the angels would often say, fear not, because I've come to bring you a message. Psalm chapter 8, verses 4 and 5 says this. What is man that you are mindful of him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels. And so the, the angels weren't affected by the fall. And so therefore, Scripture says in Second Peter, angels are both stronger, and according to Daniel chapter 9, they are smarter than us. And so the next time you pick up that little stuffed animal angel you have, or you have a little angel thing hanging from your rear view mirror, I want you to look at it and put it in its face, and look at it intently and say this, you will always be stronger and smarter than me. Amen. All right? Because the Bible says that over and over, that God created... Uh, angels a little above humans when we look at the order of creation so that's an idea of angels in the past what have they done what does the bible actually teach they've been involved in so let me talk to you about angels in the present and so we know in the past this is what angels done that's kind of an overview but but what exactly are angels doing now and this is where hallmark and and hollywood have hijacked our theology and so we're not totally sure we've seen some things we've heard some things we're not totally sure what lines up 
with the Scripture. And so, uh, here's what the Bible says, some things that angels are doing in the present. Uh, Number one, this doesn't change. They worship and rejoice in heaven. Now, let me say this. There is still a fascination in our culture with angels. Uh, Some people would border on on almost worshiping angels, but the fact that angels worship God show that they are not to be worshipped because they're worshiping the same God we are. And so Scripture says they're still involved in worship and rejoice uh, in heaven. Uh, The Bible records not only they worship God, but they rejoice in the works of God. Uh, We know from Job chapter 30 and Revelation chapter 5 that angels rejoice at the work of creation. But one of the more fascinating things that angels do is the fact that they rejoice at the work of redemption in humanity. Listen to this. Luke chapter 15 verse 10 says this. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. They're shouting. They're excited. You know what that means? Angels are not Presbyterians. I don't know if you knew that or not, all right? Angels are holy rollers, all right? They make some noise. It says there are shouts of joy when one sinner repents. And so they, uh, can you imagine that? Them looking out of heaven, looking and just someone comes to faith in Christ. And there's a celebration that goes on. Now, I've just got to be honest with you. Sometimes when the baptismal water is stirred, and we've been fortunate the past few months we've baptized a lot of people. But sometimes when that happens... We have about as much enthusiasm as when someone sinks a long golf putt. You know what I'm describing? The waters are stirring over about four weeks. We baptized 41 people. And there was some excitement. But, but sometimes in a church, there's, there's a little more like, you know, good show, good show, right? Listen, there should be. You know what I want to do when some of the baptism waters stir? I don't want to. I want to do the bull. You know what the bull dance is? Like when someone gets in the water. Woo! Right? I mean, it should, some of you are not coming back, and I don't blame you. It's like, I just want to break out and just, how exciting is that? That the only thing louder than the angels rejoicing are the people in the house of God. And so scripture says they are worshiping and rejoicing in heaven when one sinner repents. What else does it say? I think I pulled a hamstring, so I don't know there's... It says they also, Scripture says, and this is where there's a lot of interest about, they protect and minister uh, to believers on earth. And so people often wonder, like, do, do I have guardian angels? Are they still involved in that? Or is that just something we picked up off TV? Or uh, Scripture actually speaks about this at various times throughout Scripture. God used angels to minister to people. I'm reminded uh, of Elijah under the juniper tree we talked about several weeks ago. And uh, even Christ, after his temptation in the wilderness, And so now that the Holy Spirit, though, is ministering to us and comforting us, do angels still have a role in that uh, is what one of uh, people often have asked me. And so uh, Scripture does speak to this uh, clearly. We see that over and over in Scripture. Now, we don't always know if angels are at work. And there are some incredible stories. Tosh and I were uh, driving. I don't know if you, uh, the last week we've been on a mission trip, winning people to Christ on the beach and just all kinds of things going on, all right? And so we're driving home, and she's reading a story about this. I won't go into the details, but you, just, you hear a story like that, and it's verified by lots of people, and you can't help but wonder, was that an angel? There are lots of stories like that. And so, but the Scripture does speak of this. Psalm 34, 7. 
It says, the angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. So there are sometimes we're in harm's way. An angel will deliver someone is what scripture talks about. Psalm 91, verse 11 and 12. For he shall give his angels charge over you or keep you in all your ways. Listen to this. In their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. Dr. Billy Graham wrote one of the most uh, best works. It's an older book, but it's on, on angels. And he tells the following account in that book. Here's what he said. Reverend John Patton, a missionary, uh, tells a thrilling story involving the protective care of angels. It's a fascinating story. It says, hostile natives surrounded his mission headquarters one night intent on burning the Pattons out and killing them. And John Patton and his wife prayed all night during the terror-filled night that God would deliver them. And when daylight came, they were amazed to see the attackers unaccountable leave. They thank God for delivering them. A year later, the chief of the tribe was converted to Jesus Christ. And Mr. Patton, remembering what had happened, asked the chief who had kept him and his men from burning down the house that night and killing them. The chief replied in surprise, Who were all those men you had with you there? And the missionary answered, There were no men there, just my wife and I. And the chief argued. He said, We've seen many men standing their guard, hundreds of men in shining garments with drawn swords in their hand. And they seemed to circle the mission station so that the natives were afraid to attack. Only then did Mr. Patton realize that God had sent his angels to protect them. The chief agreed there was no other explanation. There are literally thousands of stories like that on record. You may have some stories of your own where there's no other explanation than God sent an angel to protect believers. And so that's angels in the past and then angels in the present. What exactly are they doing? Let's talk about uh, angels in our life. And so it's one thing to see the works they're doing in history. It's one thing to talk about them protecting missionaries across the world. But what exactly is our relationship with angels uh, in the present? So let me write down some common questions and some biblical answers. Uh, Number one, here's a question. Do people become angels when they die? Now, before I answer, I just want you to know that I feel bad because I'm about for some of you to bust your theological bubble, all right? The answer is no. No. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say that. I can't tell you how many times I've been at funerals where the family are professing believers and they come up and uh, want me to read something about their loved one that you know, they finally have earned their wings. Uh, I see that all the time. One, one time a lady gave me a poem to read that stated that her father was spending his time in eternity enjoying two things. Number one, a six-pack, and number two, his new wings, and I'm pretty sure it was that, in that order. I did not read that poem she gave me, if you're wondering. Now, despite what you read on Facebook, no one gets their wings when they die. You say, what does the Bible teach this about this? That God created angels as angel, and he created people as people. The scripture says that when those who know Christ die and go to heaven, it says you will know them just as they were known. And so there'll be a recognition of people in heaven as, as people, and there'll be some type of relationship where there's a known relationship there. So God created angels to be angels. There's no more angels being created, and God does not turn people into angels when they die. So what are some scriptures for that? He, Psalm 8, 5, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 and 23, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1, and lots of other passages. And so the Bible does not teach that, even though that is a very popular notion in our culture. So here's another question. Does everyone have a guardian angel? Like, is there one assigned, you know, like in heaven, was God looking back and saying, all right, Joe, I want you to go with Brad and Carl. You're going to go with Chris and uh, Steve and Bill and Sue. Uh, You three go with Sean, right? Like, is that, is that how that works out? 
Let me answer emphatically and dogmatically, all right? Write this down. I don't know, okay? It's, it's possible, but, but I probably wouldn't count on it. Let me walk you through why. There are two primary passages in Scripture that relate to the idea of guardian angels. And I don't have time to read them, but you can write these down if you want to look it up later. Uh, one of them is Matthew chapter 18, verse 10, and the other is Acts chapter 12, uh, verse 15. Now, here's the reality. When Scripture talks about guardian angels, it talks about a multitude of angels being willing to step in into someone's life when they need protected. It never describes this one-on-one kind of assignment, but in other words, it describes a host of angels ready to deliver the believer if necessary. Uh, We see this in 2 Kings 6.17 with Elisha and his servant being surrounded by many angels. Uh, Luke chapter 16 verse 22 talks about several angels uh, involved in carrying Lazarus' soul to paradise. Uh, We know from the scriptures that Jesus could have called upon 12 legions of angels. Here's what Psalm 91 says. Psalm 91 verses 9 through 11 says this. If you make the most high your dwelling, even the Lord who is my refuge... Then no harm will befall you, nor no disaster will come near your tent. Listen to this. For he will command his angels, plural, concerning you to guard you in all of your ways. And so the idea that I have a specific angel assigned to me is probably not exactly what the Bible teaches, but rather there is a whole host of angels that if God sends them to deliver me and protect me, that's so there is beck and call. Uh, here's another question that's very common. Are there angels among us? You're looking at one. Are there angels among us? It's possible. It's absolutely possible. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2 says this. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. And so what that means, at various times, angels have made themselves visible in the form of human beings, and those people around them were completely unaware And so while it's a possibility, we will never know for sure on this side of eternity. And so there's some one-on-one for you about angels, whether in the past and in the present, and our relationship to angels. Now, let's get to this topic of demons. And I won't spend as much time here, not because it's scary, uh, but because we've taught on this a lot more as it relates to spiritual warfare, okay? So let me give you some one-on-one on demons. Demons in the past, here's what they are. Scripture clearly calls them uh, fallen angels, Uh, The Bible says that when Lucifer, uh, Satan, was cast out of heaven, uh, that he took a third of the angels with him. And so those are fallen angels or demons. Uh, Matthew chapter 12 describes Satan as the ruler of demons. Matthew 25, 41 refers to the devil and his angels. Other times in Scripture, they're called unclean spirits, but a demon is is a fallen angel. They're rational beings, Scripture talks about. Uh, They have the ability to communicate, and so the Scripture clearly teaches that over and over. So there's demons in the past. Uh, What about demons in the present? So so here's a question. Because here's what we uh, often do in a Bible teaching church. What we often do is we take demons and we take all of that and we pretend as if it doesn't uh, exist, or we take it and we put it over in the charismatic bucket. All right, And so therefore, we're ignorant, and when we're ignorant, we're uh, open to attack. And so what are demons doing today? Like, we know what the devil's doing, right? He spends all of his time going down to Georgia looking for a soul to steal, right? Like, we've, thank God for Charlie Daniels, amen? One of the great prophets of our time, write that down. But what about his servants? Well, here's what Scripture says. Uh, about about demons in the present. Uh, One is they serve as agents of Satan. 
And so uh, if you've ever said this, well, the devil made me do it, that's probably not true. A, it's probably not true because your own sinful heart probably made you do it. You just want to admit it. Uh, But B, Satan is not omnipresent. He can't be at all places at all times. And so if he's attacking me, then I'm probably uh, not as important as I I think I am, right? But he sends his demons or his his army of fallen angels to carry out his work all over the world. And so uh, they aid in the, the distribution of false doctrine. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 2 and 1 Timothy 4 says, and then by afflicting human beings. And so uh, they serve as agents of Satan. Uh, Scripture also says this when it comes to demon. uh, Some are bound and others are not. And so Scripture describes some of them are bound under God's sovereign control. And some of them, uh, God in his sovereignty is allowed to roam free and do the work of the enemy uh, during this season until Christ comes back. Uh, Scripture talks about fallen angels, those who are bound, and those who have a limited freedom on earth. And so let me just give you some verses that we can look up later. 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, verses 19 through 22. 2 Peter chapter 2, uh, verse 4. Luke chapter 8, verse 31. Matthew chapter 8, verse 29. Those are just a few uh, that you can look up later, which I'm sure all of you will. All right? So uh, that's demons in the past, demons in the present. What about demons in my life? What what is the relationship between people and demons today? And there's a lot of things. Like, there's a lot of uh, things that people look at and say they have a demon of of whatever. Right? And it's not not an issue where they're not managing life well or it's not an issue of, you know, they've got a demon of of fear. Right? Like, I'm convinced I've got a demon of fast food. I've been, I don't know what's going on. But we just have all these things we describe that get a demon. What does the Bible actually say? So let me write down some common questions as it relates to demons and people. So here's the most common question I get on this subject over years of pastoring. Number one, can a believer be demon-possessed? The answer technically is no. Let me, let, me, let me clarify that, okay? Charles Ryrie, who's one of my favorite theologians, Charles Ryrie in defining demon possession said this. He said it's a demon residing in a person exerting direct control and influence over that person with certain derangement of mind and or body. Now, listen to this. Demon possession is to be distinguished from demon influence or demon activity in relation to a person. The work of the demon in the latter form is from the outside in demon possession. It's from within. So let me write down some, give you some terms here. All right, if you're listening, say amen. Here are two terms, demon possession and demon oppression. One is from the inside, possession. Can a believer be demon-possessed? The answer is no. Why? Because the Spirit of God lives inside him. And what fellowship does light have with darkness? 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. One writer said this, Every time a demon comes and knocks on the door of your heart, the Holy Spirit opens the door and says, Get lost! And so when we talk about oppression, the answer is no, or, or possession. But when we talk about oppression, which is from the outside, tempting me, deceiving me, discouraging me, causing me to doubt. Can a believer be subject to those things? Absolutely, over and over and over again. So a believer can't be demon-possessed, but they can be oppressed, uh, is what the Scripture actually teaches. Uh, What can demons demons do to believers? Temptation, deception, discouragement, oppression, all those things. Uh, You've heard me say this on many, many occasions that I believe that Satan's greatest weapons against a believer in the form of oppression uh, falls in the area of emotional discouragement and intellectual doubt. That's his greatest weapon. Emotional discouragement and intellectual doubt are the enemy's greatest weapon against a believer. So let's give some action steps. 
Now, in a message like this, which is uh, totally doctrinal on a subject, uh, it's a little hard. So what's the application, right? Like, I, I can't become an angel. You already told me that. Let me down, right? And I'm already raising a couple demons. And so what exactly, like, right? So what's the application here when we talk about all this doctrine? Well, let me give you a few quick ones here and we're done. Number one, embrace the fact that there is an invisible war going on. The Bible clearly teaches that as believers we are involved in spiritual warfare and if there's the war, Satan's greatest strategy is to convince you that that simply is not true. And you and I, if we're, we remain ignorant about that, we're casual about that, we're open to the enemy's attack against us. The Bible says very clearly that Satan's campaign against us is an active one. It describes him in 1 Peter chapter 5 as a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour or destroy. There is an ongoing invisible war against you and I. If you remember the Sermon on David a few weeks ago, you remember the first step in ruining your life is complacency. And so when it comes to this war against the enemy, we just come complacent. And we're no longer on guard like 1 Peter tells us about. We're no longer putting on the armor of God like Ephesians talks about. We're no longer renewing our mind with the truth of God's word so that when the enemy attacks us in our thought life, we can take that thought captive. Listen, number one, there's an invisible war going on over and over. Now, let me just add this as well. Because there has been a remarketing and rebranding on the occult over the last couple of years. Now listen, if someone got up and said, hey, what'd you do this weekend? You know what? I had a great weekend. We had a cookout. We had some friends over. We went swimming. And then we spent all night playing uh, with a Ouija board with our small group. It was awesome. Like nobody's saying that, right? But I hear lots of people in our culture today who would never claim to do that. Lots of people, even professing believers, who are involved and, and fans of uh, people on TV now who are communicating with the dead and spiritual mediums from Long Island and every other place in the world and all these kinds of things. And so uh, l- listen to this. Here's what the scripture says about that. Whether it's Ouija boards or astrology or psychics or palm readers or tarot cards or seance or trying to con- uh, contact the dead. None of these have place in the life of a believer. Here's what the Bible says. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 10 through 12. Listen to this. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through a fire, or one who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls upon the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. You say, I don't know what abomination is. Write this down. It ain't good. Don't play with fire if you don't want to get burned. And all that stuff, at one point in time, we called it the occult and witchcraft, and now we're calling it reality TV. Can I get an amen? If you remember nothing else on angels and demons, and we're done, remember this. As believers that when I understand my position in Christ and the defeated position of the enemy already, past tense, finished, end of the story already known. Here's what I want you to understand this morning. As believers, we are not fighting for victory. We are fighting from victory. There's an old song, and old school's over, so I won't sing it. But it simply says, I've read the back of the book, and we win. And so you and I are not fighting for victory against the enemy. Listen, we're fighting from victory. And the enemy's greatest strategy is to get you to think you're fighting for victory when in reality you're fighting from victory. I love what someone said. They said every time Satan, uh, you know, starts to bring up your past, remind him of his future. 
We're fighting from victory, not for victory. So what does that mean? That means every ounce of ground in your heart and in your mind that the enemy has claimed he has done so with your permission. And the Bible really is true as a believer when it says this, that no weapon formed against me shall prosper. Why? Because we're not fighting for victory. We're fighting from victory. My guess is that for some of you today, Satan has claimed some ground in your life or his demons have, in your thought life, in your heart. My guess is today that for some of you, it's time to serve him an eviction notice because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Is that good news? Would you say amen if that's good news? We celebrate that today. Well, let's bow our heads this morning and ask God to search our hearts. With your head bowed this morning, let me just say this. It's okay to struggle. It's okay to be in a spot where the enemy has taken some ground in your life because you've been tired or maybe you've let your guard down. It's okay to be there. It's not okay to stay there. Because God has not called you to that life. God has called you to an abundant life. God's not called you to endure your salvation. God's called you to enjoy your salvation. And so if you're here this morning and you've never received Jesus Christ, listen, you can receive him today. And you too can be fighting from a place of victory. He's already won the battle. Your sins have already been paid for. Your sins have already been forgiven, past, present, and even future. If you'll receive Jesus Christ today, would you pray and receive Christ today right where you're at? Would you confess your sins? Would you pray and invite Jesus Christ to come into your life and be your Lord and Savior? And would you commit today to following him? The scripture says if you'll do that today by faith, then you'll be born again. Many of you have already done that, but for whatever reason, the enemy's claimed a little ground in your life, dealing with some doubt, dealing with some discouragement, and you just need to start living out of the truth that you're not fighting for victory, you're fighting from victory. And you need a little encouragement this morning to walk in that truth. I just want to pray for you today. That's all I want to do. Would you just lift up your hand and say, Pastor, that's me. I'm not walking in the truth of a victorious Christian. I feel like I'm fighting for victory, not from victory. Just pray for me. Would you pray for me? Would you lift up your hand right now? Amen. Anybody else? Amen. Amen. Lift them up. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for you this morning. God, I pray this morning for every hand that was raised and acknowledged the enemy has taken some ground in my heart and mind. God, I pray that today the truth of God's word would set them free just as you promised in John 8, 32. That God, they would walk out of here today realizing they're fighting a defeated enemy. God, they would walk out of here realizing that all the resources and blessings that you want to give them are available in their life. And so God, I pray today that they would wake up tomorrow and live with a sense of victory because it's already been given to them. And God, renew their minds around the truth of God's word today. Set them free from strongholds in their thought life that scripture talks about. 
We thank you for Jesus Christ and his power to break every chain, as the song says. We are grateful that we no longer have to live in bondage to the enemy in his lives. We're no longer a slave to our own sin. That Jesus Christ alone sets us free. And God, we say thank you, thank you, amen, thank you.